0: Hello, this is the Plant Book Club. Hello, welcome to the Plant Book Club. This week, we read The Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan, and my name is Ellen.
1: I'm here with Tegan, Judith, Melissa, and Yoram. Hi, I'm Tegan. Um i I'm one half of Plants and Pepets with Yarm.
2: Hi. And I didn't uh, get the book in time, so I will be today asking the questions um, of the person who hasn't read the book. <laughs> Apart from that, I'm just happy to listen to you um, talk about the book, because you all had a chance to read it. <laughs> and then we also have like uh, Judith and uh, Melissa, right?
3: Yes, hello. This is Judith from Floral Design.
4: And this is Melissa, also from Flora L. Design. And I'm looking forward to talking about this book today.
0: Yeah, so this book was divided into four parts. And it's about how these four plants that Michael Pollan talks about uh, took over the world by way of humans' desire. (laughs) And the first chapter is about apples. The second is about tulips. The third is about marijuana. And the fourth is about potatoes. Um, And so, yeah, Michael Pollan kind of goes through the history of all these plants and especially the history of how they got humans to like them so much that they cultivated them and spread them around the world.
2: Can I ask right from the top, is this another plant intelligence book like the one that we had?
1: Oh, I want to talk about that so hard, but but we have to talk about that because Ellen, in the very, like not even in the first chapter, in the introduction, there is something that gets kind of close to this intelligence that we had with our previous book by Stefano Mancuso where it's talking about how we as humans are being exploited by the plants in the same way that plants exploit bumblebees and because of this exploitation, we are bringing them around the world and... It doesn't quite go as, like, bizarre as the other book does. That's a polite way of saying it. But it it does very much hint about the fact that we are, as humans, are kind of being used, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say so.
4: Yeah, that was this, kind of the premise in the first chapter, saying how, like, humans are just like a bumblebee. That I think he used that exact analogy, that humans are the bumblebees spreading genes, and that we're no different than how you know, flowers trick bumblebees into carrying pollen around that plants have tricked humans to do all these things for sake of the plants. And the book also, on my copy, it has a subtitle, A Plant's Eye View of the World. So that was, um, that led me to expect something different than what the the book
2: actually was. (laughs) What did you expect?
4: Well, I thought it would be a plant side view of the world, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think I'm wrong in expecting that. But I really thought it would be about how the plants, how plants work, and how plants function, like from a plant perspective. But it was very much human centered, still um, centered around what humans use plant for, what who <laughs> what humans use plants for, how they use them, and basically how they've domesticated them, which is very different than, um, you know, random uh, gene mixing that bumblebees would do. So I I kind of took issue right at the beginning with the, the plant's eye view of the world because I was like, oh, it's not it's still very human, human based.
0: Yeah, Michael Pollan is an excellent writer and he used the classic technique of gathering these colorful characters from history and Basing his stories around them, and also using some of his own anecdotes about, like, growing weed in his garden. Yeah, that was really, I
3: think, a nice, uh, a nice way of going through the book because it had always a connection to his own, his own experience with these different plants. And I can say that in the um, somewhere in the in the tulip chapter uh the second chapter it started off like he seemed to be hating gardening and like it was i i, I felt to me it felt really negative and i was like why is he writing about plants if he hates them for <laughs> <Yes>. god's sake <laughs> why would you do this but uh reading on you would find out that in the last chapter he's really much into his garden and he describes how he's gardening and how he has all this like it kind of sums up the the, the chapters of the book into his garden and goes back to the apples in the beginning and the potatoes in the end um and uh, i think this is uh, this is very interesting and also the tulip chapter got a bit better because he actually grew tulips uh, and it wasn't only this bad memory from his childhood where he was paid to put bulbs in the soil yeah. <laughs> he didn't have any like connection to that um but i i found um I had a hard way into the book and it took me a very long time to read through the first chapter because it was very much based on American history and American geography. And I just didn't get it. I wanted to have a map with it. I didn't know where they were going, and I, I kind of, I think I skipped the end of the chapter, and I thought, let's move on to the tulips and to uh, Europe because at least I will, I will see if this is because it's in in America that I have such a trouble understanding, or if this generally the way the book was written. And then it got much better. And I, I think the more agree. chapters I read, the, the easier it got for me. I really had to. It took a long time to mm. get into this way of writing.
4: Had you
1: heard of Johnny Appleseed before? Not me. I'd heard of the name, but I knew nothing of the history. And I agree with you. It's like the the first chapter, it really, it was very US centric, but it also had this assumption that you would heard those stories growing up, which, yeah, it was a bit like, "Mm." and again, it wasn't really about the plants. Like the apples were mentioned, but it was quite far from the plants. And I was just like, I mean, I found it fascinating. Still, I really like enjoyed that history, but I was like, this is not, about the plants here. This is about like an American, important US historical figure, but that threw me a little bit in the first chapter as well.
2: Who is Johnny Appleseed? Like I've heard the name, but...
0: Maybe Ellen. This was Johnny Chapman, John Chapman, who um, spread apples around the United States and he just threw out seeds basically, which is not the way that people usually grow apples. Usually they're, um, you know, cut from... Yeah, cut from already existing seeds because apples have a lot of genetic variability. And so, and let me know if I'm not explaining this right, plant scientists, (laughs) (laughs) but they have a lot of genetic variability. And so you don't know what you're going to get when you just plant apple seeds. But that's what John Chapman did. And he uh,
1: made a lot of variations of apples that way. But he made awful apples, was a take-home message, and they were, I mean, they were not apples that you could really eat, they were apples that were almost definitely only useful for making apple cider, so making alcohol, and therefore they had a lot of value, and that was like a really fun story, I think. Um, but yeah, definitely there was a bit of a, a knowledge gap at the very start for me, where I was like, who is who is this dude?
0: Yeah, as an American who did hear these stories growing up, I felt very comfortable. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was... I was enjoying it a lot, but I can see how it would be confusing if you didn't grow up with those stories.
1: It was still really, really nicely written. And I really enjoyed this like, yeah, comparison of the, the Johnny Appleseed that is apparently told about him, you know, making apples and apple being the fruit of the nation when the reality is it wasn't the fruit, it was a product from making alcohol. And this kind of dual narrative that exists and some people who don't want that alcohol narrative to be told because... It doesn't suit the family values kind of story. I, I found that really, really fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was really interesting. I think also Vavilov was mentioned in this chapter, and I think <laughs> yes. that's the fourth time. Is that the fourth time he's been mentioned? I underlined that. And it. everyone's <laughs> always like, he's so obscure. He's like very indie, <laughs> but we, we're we going to mention him. And it's like every book. <laughs>
1: yeah i i had to underline that for for you ellen because it's it's come up in like everything we've read so far it's yeah. really it's impressive
2: can you remind us who this guy was um because i mean i've I read the other stuff but i forgot who Vazelov is. i
0: didn't write down the page number tegan's finding it but he was a russian scientist who did a lot of work with genetics and stalin put him in a prison and left him to die yeah because stalin didn't believe in genetics that's my non-fact-checked version of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it was basically, though, that he was in favor and then he fell out of favor, and he's come up kind of in every single book of ours. But, yeah, I can't find the reference in the Apple chapter. Are you sure it was the Apple chapter? Uh, I thought it was the Apple chapter. I thought he had something to do with Apple genetics.
3: Um, I have here, uh, Vavilov is on page 58 in my version. <laughs>
1: Yes, it was Nikolai Valovov, the great Russian botanist who first identified the wild apples eaten in the forest around Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan. Beautiful. That should be a new rule. All our books have to be to do with plants and have Valovov in there. Vavilov Val- somehow. In there. It could be like a bingo card. <laughs> yeah, put it in the bingo card. <laughs> yeah what else should, so I think bingo would now have him and then mention of plants being like intelligent and controlling people that would be the second <laughs> bingo um, yeah. what else we've got to think of some things that we can put in this
2: I'll try to take notes and during the like during this show and maybe the following shows we can construct like a 4 by 4 5 by 5 bingo card mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I think I think GMOs has got to be in there as well like some sort of comment on genetic modification is, is yeah.
2: gonna be
1: Bing, bing, bing. I think you should explain what the different four chapters mean. Oh, like he
0: had a different theme for each of them. The chapter one is desire, sweetness. That's the apple. Um, Yeah, that's the apple. The tulip is desire, beauty. Fair enough. The marijuana is desire, intoxication. And then the potatoes is desire control.
4: Before we go to tulips, I had a question. Did anyone have like a favorite chapter that they enjoyed the most of all the plants?
0: I liked the apple chapter the best.
4: I also like the apple. <laughs> I like
0: that the least. <laughs>
3: <So>. <laughs>
0: I liked um, hearing about Johnny Chapman.
3: I think I like the marijuana chapter a lot because it was very, he had this personal story how he grew it in his garden and then there was like this guy coming delivering wood and when they talked it it happened to to turn out that he was a policeman and it was describing how the regulations had changed in the US so much. But I also liked a lot the last chapter about potato because that went into biotechnology and had very... um, uh, like present time uh, discussion edge on that and uh, I thought he, he kept himself uh, rather neutral trying to f- to to be open to all kind of perspectives but i I like these two chapters most um, I'm not so much into into history and I always have problems with all the numbers and I think definitely maybe the apple and the tulip chapter were more historical because they were p- further back in time Um the the potato was also a little bit like that, but it wasn't so much about uh, any kind of famous people back in the
4: days.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about the marijuana chapter and like US racism, but we can get to that when we get to that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Apple, do we have any other comments on the Apple that need to be said? I just wanted to say in the Apple chapter, I really liked... Um, The
4: part where he talks about going to that field of like apple biodiversity and seeing where they've like catalogued all the different types of apple and they're growing and they have like different shapes and sizes and colors and taste. I thought that was really, really cool, very evocative description. It made me want to go to that place. I wish I could visit there and taste these different types of apples that we never get to buy
1: in the stores. Yeah, some 2,500 different varieties.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm definitely going to go visit that in Geneva, New York. Like, it's a plan for me. That's what, yeah, that's what I was going to talk about, too, that this inspired me. And I'm definitely going to go visit.
3: I enjoyed as well reading how he like went around with his boat and he had all these different seeds on his boat and he would go somewhere and stay there a few days and just plant uh, like an orchard of apple trees somewhere that people could then use further on. So it was kind of going around and planting all this diversity, uh, which is the opposite of the potato in the very end. we had talk a lot, it's talking a lot about uh, monoculture, but I thought it was... Uh, that was a nice way of imagining even that he had uh, like a catamaran like boat uh, that w- was equilibrated to key- to carry on one side all these apple seeds in the same weight as himself on the other side <laughs> Which is a very nice, um, it's a ne- very nice metaphor for feeling about like balancing nature and uh, diversity in in what we are planting and culturing with ourselves.
1: I, I really like this um, idea that, I mean, this is back in the, the days, the original kind of frontier times in the US, that in order to have land, you had to set out at least 50 apple or pear trees in order to get the land. And this was a a thing that was set up to prevent people from basically buying and then quickly selling the land. It's like, you're gonna put an investment in this land and you know, that will therefore encourage you to stay there and live there. And I love that as a way to like stop hyperinflation of properties and this like bubble bursting thing. So I just I like that. We should have that now. We should have that everybody who buys property has to like plant trees on the property and like has to live there until the fig makes fruit or whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Could be carbon offset.
0: (laughs) Could have prevented the 2008 financial crisis.
1: Yeah, that's... I I think it's just, it's so simple and beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. The one other thing I thought was a little bit strange to me in the Apple So like it was very US history, but there was also some bits where he was really into this idea of, like, the apple is the American fruit. And for me, like, when he's saying American, he means, like, U.S. American. For me, that was a little bit on the nose sometimes because it's, like, it wasn't, though, right? Like, the apple became an apple, like, in Kazakhstan. So I think when you, like, to me, when you have the story, like, it's now become a U.S. thing. It's, like, well, you're ignoring, like, all of its history except for the last couple (laughs) of hundred years. And that always makes me a little bit itchy. It's a bit, like, oh, I, I cringe, like... And that came up like three or four times. So he's talking about how like the apples that like were winnowed down um, became slightly more American. Later on, he says that it's a piece of fruit that became a bright metaphor for the American dream. And then he's got one statement, which is like, what native plant zealot would dare to challenge the right of such trees to call themselves American now? Um, (laughs) And it's like, "Mm, okay, but no, (laughs) to me, no, still.
3: I thought it was interesting also to hear how people were making um, applejack with the freezing. How was that? I'm trying to find it.
0: It would like you they like freeze w- the apple juice and then you skim the alcohol off the top. Yeah, yeah. Because it didn't freeze. Oh. Yeah, here it says
3: they they got. Hmm.
4: So it's like a way of distilling the alcohol out of the oh, juice. It yeah, with, without a
3: distiller. So that was an interesting technique.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think we had yeah. that in the Braiding Sweetgrass book. She was making maple syrup like this. Um, mm-hmm. or she was describing, like she was boiling it, but she was describing it that the indigenous people would often do that in the cold winter months and then use sort of the, the separation of sugar from the watery contents by um, sort of just removing the ice that's floating on top of the liquid and then the remaining still liquid um, solution is quite sugary. And I guess it's similar with the alcohol. Although I would imagine that the alcohol has a more a bigger tendency to sort of evaporate eventually. So I'd be more scared of losing my precious alcohol to, uh, when using that technique.
3: It said here, uh, cider frozen to 30 degrees below zero yields an applejack of 66 proof. That was a... Uh, yeah, that was interesting. I also thought the the, um, I think it was in the apple chapter. Now this is a bit like a long time ago that I read this, uh, that I was fighting with this. But how the apples distributed on the Silk Road. I think that was also a nice uh, description, how human trade and traveling and that people would take the apples with them. And that's like how they would would spread through the world and eventually arrive in different countries where they were not uh, growing initially.
1: Wow, have we got a book for you then? The, the, <laughs> you want to read about the Silk Road and things moving on the Silk Road, Like we can recommend a book for you. <laughs> That's what
0: Tegan and Joram, do you all remember apples being mentioned in the silk road book i
1: don't remember at
0: all all i remember it was is all, millet. like
1: millet yeah exactly. <laughs> <No, laughs> millet, foxtail millet broomtail i don't know fishtail millet like millet millet millet
2: <laughs> i do remember some like lists that included apple as well like this book was big on millet and big on lists and some of the lists um had apples and peaches and apricots and lots of like tree born fruit oh. in it <laughs>
4: I
3: remember actually listening to your book, to your podcast while I was uh, moving and had six hours'
1: drive. (laughs) I remember now the Millet's in the same room.
0: (laughs) I
3: think I make the short version now.
1: (laughs) We were like, we're going to talk on the podcast for as long as he was talking about Millet in the book. We're just like, not going to shut up for three hours complaining about this Millet. That was our approach.
0: All right, ready to move on to tulips? What did you
4: all think about this chapter? I struggled through the tulip chapter... So hard. I don't know why, but I it took me like a month to get through the Tulip chapter. I just I found I don't know, not a lot interesting. I felt like the the premise he had of the desire of beauty. He would talk like a lot about what's beautiful and what's beautiful about flowers. And I just was like, oh I don't it (laughs) get to the get to the other stuff. (laughs) That's how I felt. Yeah, I also found
0: this chapter my least favorite.
1: I agree. It was the (laughs) last (laughs) <laughs> and I feel like there's there's interesting stuff about the tulips with the stock market like there's this whole novels like tulip fever on this idea and he just was didn't want to do that he wanted to talk about yeah. the beauty and he, the grasp on it wasn't great for me and there was also some things in there which just didn't strike me as accurate so at one stage he says that like historically people thought mountains were ugly and everyone's like mountains are ugly they're warts on earth and it was only recently they become beautiful and I was like I just don't believe that like there are really <laughs> old like vases which have mountains etched on them there are like beautiful like Japanese prints of mountains they're not like oh this is a really ugly mountain I'm going to immortalize it in this like tapestry or art." no I just don't know <laughs> mountains <laughs> yeah. are beautiful and I don't believe this <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: For me, this whole chapter had a little bit of a... It started off on a little negative touch because it's, uh, yeah, that childhood experience where he didn't like to plant the tulips. And then it moves on to... Uh, to the Netherlands and for some reason I got a very negative feeling about him talking about Dutch people that I mean the country is ugly and everything is like have you ever been there I don't think it's so ugly (laughs) so I, I I yeah I didn't like that part um And then, of course, I mean, some of uh, the I think the historical part is interesting how the tulips came from uh, Turkey to uh, Holland and how people were trading them and like trading them at prices where they would put their house, their families, their their jobs at risk just to obtain a certain variety of, of tulips. And also one of the aspects is that there was a very um famous tulip that had these stripes and these stripes were caused by a virus and his question that kind of like brought the whole book idea into question where he said if plants were trying to dominate how we grow them that well they wouldn't come up with the idea to make us select some that are like infected by a virus so um but then it was more the virus that was <laughs> manipulating humans to select these tulips that were beautiful
2: it becomes very complicated at one point with like who is the intelligent one intelligent one here like it's is it the plants is it us is it the virus like who knows
3: and then it also went off, and this was all about this like the masculinity of of uh tulip flowers and it's like <laughs>
1: okay such an obsession like is it a- He's talking about the Queen of the Night, which is this very black tulip. It's called the Queen of the Night. And he's like, it's graceful, but graceful in a specific masculine way. It's like, not everything that thrusts has to be masculine. Like, just because it comes up out of the ground. Have some imagination. (laughs) <laughs> yeah tulips oh, really? are
0: pretty phallic though
1: like <laughs> they could also be yonic though if you look at them from the top down like I'm sorry <laughs> like, it's all perspective and his perspective was really male like mm. and in the first chapter he was like obsessed with Dionysus so he had this whole like alcohol Dionysus and then he got really into Apollo and he's like yeah the tulip represents Apollo and I was like no how <laughs> really <laughs> because phallic is is the whole thing yeah Everything about tulip sex seems orderly and intelligible. It's just, it's so, it's so weird to me. <laughs> there were definitely some bits through the book where I got like a little bit sexy in a weird way where I was just like, this is a bit like, <laughs> this is a strange way that we're now describing things. It's like bizarrely sexy. Well, it's called the
0: botany of desire. So I don't know what you thought you were saying <laughs> for.
1: <laughs> That's true. It's just. Okay, here, so the tulip by contrast is all Apollo Apollonian clarity and order. It's a linear left brain sort of flower, in no way occult, explicit and logical in its formal rules and arrangement. So it's just <coughs> I mean, you've seen like some of these tulips which have these fringed leaves and they're a mess of colours and they're like and then when they, they grow old they kind of collapse into disarray and they're like they're chaos and beauty and this thing of it being like clean and pure and like Pointy, I just don't like. Has he not seen a tulip? Like, I mean, it, I just don't buy it. I'm really not,
3: yeah. And also, the point that uh, he made that tulips were not uh, having any scent
1: oh, yeah, I, that's not that, That's
3: true definitely either. not true. I've just been sitting for a week <laughs> next to my tulips here at home and felt like a, I'm going to go on a trip here, but <laughs>
1: sitting. Here. <laughs> so, Sorry. Can, can, I, um, can I read another bit about masculine flowers? So. <laughs> <laughs> the cano- canonical flowers seem to me almost female, except that is for the tulip, perhaps the most masculine of flowers. If you doubt this, watch next a- April how a tulip forces its head up out of the ground, how the head gradually colours as it rises. Dig down along the shaft and you'll find its bulb, smooth, rounded, hard as a nut, a form of which the botanists often offer a most graphic term, testiculate. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I just, I just couldn't. At that point, I was like, "Really? Like, it has te- the tulip has testicles now?" Are we- no. <sighs> um, I actually wrote, "Oh my god," on my book. My book now has. It. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Everything is on Post-its except for that. So when you give the book away to somebody else, they just have like a clean book except for (laughs) that one page.
1: Yeah, and definitely I agree with the Dutch thing. So there's like this comment about how like the the tulip's useful beauty suits the Dutch taste for display. And there's a bit about how like Holland is just the ugliest country in the world and smells bad and (laughs) it's awful. Like there's a few things where it's like both about Holland as a country and also the Dutch people where you're like that seems a bit mean like I don't know. This (laughs) sounds like
2: it's written by Austin Powers' father there's like in the movies there's the quote where he's like there's only two things in the world that I hate being intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch
1: (laughs) (laughs) I noticed it and I guess like Judith you noticed it as well did did you guys notice as well this like a little bit (laughs) bit strong on the anti-Dutch there (laughs) yes I didn't notice, but I think I was just trying to get through the
4: chapter. <laughs> like,
3: <laughs> I found the cha- the chapters were all in a way very different, um, hey, from yeah, this that's historical true. Yeah. to this. This was very like um, it tried to be poetic in a way, mm-hmm. but I found it just very wordy. <laughs> and it's like okay let's go on we're the facts now what's next (laughs) whereas in the next chapter you would more have a personal story and I I, yeah there was definitely a very big difference to uh, how I liked the chapters
0: yeah I think it's interesting that this is Michael Pollan's first book and then next he got really famous from The Omnivore's Dilemma which is about food and plants which I enjoy I read and enjoyed and then his latest book he turns to hallucinogens it's called uh how to change your mind and it's about how you should do hallucinogenic drugs when you're middle-aged which i read <laughs> and like i f- i liked it less than any of his other books <laughs>
2: <laughs> Wait, is he middle-aged like is that <laughs> is it just well, like now his justification is,
0: now it, <laughs> Now he's, yeah, now he's middle-aged. I think I saw him in person when he was, like, I, like 10 years ago. And, um, yeah, it was enjoyable. I like his writing.
2: So, Tulip Chapter, I take that as... Not so great from everyone.
1: <laughs> I I would yeah. say it's it's the one that I interacted with other people the most while reading it because I kept on taking like photos of like the penis descriptions and sending them to my friends. So
2: <laughs> I remember it, getting it those. those me, yes. Yeah,
1: it gave me a lot of immature joy, and frankly, it's a shock that Yoram wasn't sending me them. F- like, I mean, it made me happy. <laughs> it's been a long walk
0: okay. down, you guys. <laughs> The next chapter is Desire Intoxication, and the plant is marijuana. Cannabis sativa slash indica. Y'all can correct me on my Latin.
2: If if anybody has ever listened to our show, no. (laughs) We're not correcting anyone on the Latin.
0: And... This chapter actually made me really mad because he spins like a (laughs) solid three pages being like, I don't know why the United States got stricter about drugs. It's a big mystery. Who knows? And The War on Drugs is famously about racism. And um, uh, I really recommend the book, The New Jim Crow, about how, um, yeah, Black people are arrested for marijuana possession and use way, way more than anyone else. And uh, that's what it was about. <laughs> and Michael Pollan is just ignoring that in in a, in my opinion, really obnoxious way.
1: Yeah. So this was written in like the early 2000s. Is that correct? Or was it even yeah. before that? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, he might have written this differently today. I hope he would have. I hope so. But yeah. But this was still true in 2002.
1: Of course, yeah. Just um we've seen that before in our books where like some of the older ones just kind of are happier to gloss over really obvious facts like this. Um yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even in the in the tulip um chapter, they were talking about how like the tulips became popular by being stolen from somebody's garden, and then in the next paragraph after that, he mentions how they originally didn't come from that country anyway. I think it was the Netherlands. Um, and it's like, okay, so can we discuss how it was maybe stolen from a different country then first? Like, this also yeah. seems like <laughs> something that happened to get it to Europe that was not necessarily okay from a from a any perspective, to be honest. But yeah. Okay, so marijuana. I think I
3: liked a lot about that how um, people had dealt with the restrictions and like crossed um, indica and sativa to get uh, appropriate plants that would um, make the flowers more quickly that wouldn't be so big and. Uh, like it was very much like an inventive and geeky business and when he travels there to amsterdam and uh, meets people on this like convent for for the the plants and looks at their uh, growing rooms somewhere hidden in an apartment with a lot of uh, lights and everything in so it was very very interesting that this world existed i definitely know that I know that uh, the reputation of Amsterdam and the coffee shops and I've been there and uh, when I was 16 I've been told by the teachers from school you're not going into those (laughs) (laughs) but but, um, I didn't know that there was such like an enthusiasm of people behind that would be like secret botanists and crossing these plants and making new hybrids and trying to find new ways of growing them and that a whole uh, basically new hybrids had developed in that way and that was a fascinating part and I also like that he went a little bit more into the medical part there. I think in the in the, this chapter and the last chapter, there's more and more interview parts coming in where he meets people and talks to people and reports of what he has found there. I didn't notice that so much in the first two chapters. Uh, in the Apple chapter, he is going and uh, going with somebody on a trip and learning from that person. Um, but this is more like it felt somewhat different he's he's talking to different scientists and getting information and i think i appreciated that to see how what do we know actually on the effect of um the thc on the human human brain and that is a whole mystery in itself so there were different aspects to that
1: yeah, you're right. These last two chapters feel a bit more like getting different points of view by interviewing different people. Um, and that comes up also with the potatoes, that's true. Mm-hmm. I really like the idea that comes up that is, um, I, can, I can read it, deep down, I suspect that many gardeners regard themselves as small-time ki- alchemists. And I, I really, I like that idea. It's like transforming... Yeah, that was cute. But is it transforming the dross of compost and water and sunlight into substances of rare value and beauty and power? I that makes me want to go into my garden. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have a line that I
4: bookmarked from this chapter, and it says, "While we animals were busy nailing down things like locomotion and consciousness, the plants, without ever lifting a finger or giving it a thought, acquired an array of extraordinary and occasionally diabolical powers by discovering how to synthesize remarkably complicated molecules." And I was like, "Oh, I like that. I always, I love um, like plant biochemistry." So. All the, all the different things that, they, that plants make is really fascinating to me. So I, I enjoyed the part where it talked about what uh, the compounds THC is doing in the human nervous system, because I didn't know a lot about that and that there was like, there's endogenous uh, THC like detectors or molecules in humans um, in their own biology. I didn't know that before. So I thought all oh, that was very interesting.
0: Endocannabinoids.
4: Yeah, endocannabinoids. There was one line that was um, talking bad about uh, hemp fiber, though, and I took that personally because I studied. um, I worked on hemp a little bit in my PhD looking at fiber development, and he was just saying something like, oh, no one's interested in the fiber, and I was like, I was. Oh, I thought he said, (laughs) the way I
0: remember it, and I would be open to, I don't remember what the book says exactly, but I read it as – in the United States, they were so prudish about marijuana at all that hemp was, like, classed in that category and banned because everyone was so paranoid about marijuana.
4: Yeah, there was a part about that where it's, yeah, where it says that that kind of relationship with, um, like, the, the plant itself, cannabis, has just been, like, tarred as a bad plant. In general, when it when it can be quite useful for for other things, when certain um, strains of it don't even have THC in it.
3: Yeah, I think another aspect that I found really uh, both interesting and funny is that this uh, the cannabinoid network of neuron cells they seem to have something to do with pain and also with forgetting the pain. He's comparing it to giving birth, and that. Uh, people don't don't remember how painful it was, which I think he's wondering why that is. I think he never has uh, given birth, probably.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there, I know uh, some people who remember that very well.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but I it, it is true that we forget it. That's true, Yarm. So and I I
3: think that's uh, that's just an evolutionary thing because otherwise uh, people would stop after one child and probably that was not what evolution wanted to to do. But the the thing that how would you study the effect of THC on the brain if you apply it to a person and what they do is they have a nice time and then they forget what it was like. So (laughs) that was an interesting aspect of it that it's a very it's a very secret thing to study if it's based on that you forget the effects you can't really Describe what it was like,
1: and she's there. Was like even the the saying that there was cannabinoid receptors in the uterus itself, so really trying to like dull the pain. Which was like, all right, that seems cool, good. <laughs> oh no, just like this general idea that like forgetting is even more important than remembering. I I love that that I it makes sense, right? But it's 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 not something I had thought about before. I really liked that.
0: Yeah, I loved his musings about how you have to live perfectly in the moment when you're forgetting everything around you. Um, mm. I think you can tell his interest in hallucinogens and mind-altering <laughs> drugs based on this chapter that that's where he's
1: going to go later in life.
4: Yeah, you can see the signs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's growing like opium poppies in his yard and he's like, it's fine, you can grow opium poppies as long as you're not actually extracting the opium. Like That seems like a bizarre rule, but okay, sure. Yeah, I
4: liked the story. You'd have talked about it a bit already, but where he talks about secretly growing pot plants and then he gets really, really paranoid <laughs> about having the pot plants, I I enjoyed that. It was it was a bit lighthearted at that point, just talking a bit about you know some of the paranoia that can come with it as well.
0: Yeah, that also made me mad because he's like a white guy, so.
1: he'll be fine (laughs) not
0: that much to worry about yeah it's like you could have expanded your experience a little bit there
1: but (laughs) I mean if you don't want to make that the focus you should at least acknowledge it before moving on right that's kind of the
0: yeah well and he did talk a lot about how he doesn't understand why Americans suddenly became so prudish about uh marijuana and it was definitely because of racism
1: in his defense he might have been high that whole period that was happening. <laughs> so maybe that's the like the mental lapse as we heard. Kind of annoyed to help you forget. <laughs> but yeah, interesting. There's also a comment about Aldous Huxley saying that there are not as many mystics. So it's not it's not his idea, it's 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 from um Huxley, but saying that there's less mystics in the common era than they used to be, because we now all have like good diets. So like a lot of people who were previously mystics were just like deficient in some important vitamins and that was making them seem mystical and I think that's kind of a again a thread that makes a lot of sense to me that people you know all had medical issues that were not being diagnosed and that was seen as like oh this person is like having a visitation by a god or something like that this kind of yeah modern medicine angle
0: yeah I've been reading The Secret History by Donna Tart this weekend and it's about Can I spoil it for y'all? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, if you're listening to the podcast, skip over the next 30 seconds if you don't want to get spoiled on The Secret History by Donna But it's about a bunch of college students who want to uh, reproduce a Greek bacchanal, and they all get really high and drunk, and they fast for three days, crucially, and then they murder someone.
1: So, um, <laughs> Wait, what is, what is the, spo- the spoiler? Was it they murdered somebody? Or yeah, that's the spoiler okay. that's
2: because you don't find that
0: out. The book is super long, and you don't find that out okay. for a long time. So, highly recommend the book. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds
4: terrible. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> like, <laughs> Thanks for talking about it. <laughs> it's like, like I don't need more to read this one. <laughs>
0: All right, should we move on to the next chapter on that note? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> on the all note. No, wait, 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 wait. Hashish is linked to the word assassin. That kind of fits in with the death theme. That's really cool to me.
2: I knew that. Like, I, I hadn't Fine, had it uh, in my mind. <laughs> no, it's just like in the, in the Dan Brown books. There's like one, like, you know, Dan Brown, who writes like very exciting adventure novels that, sound all like scientific and true but if you look at it too closely it's like all made up fancy <laughs> Did you read the Da Vinci
0: Code?
2: Yeah I think it's in the Da Vinci Code where there's like a, an assassin and this assassin is always like smoking hashish and then like Dan Brown is writing about how Um, like the history of that and uh, how this assassin is like he's like super strong with himself in terms of like strict with himself in terms of rules that he has but he also like he visits prostitutes and smokes hashish because that's like part of the assassin culture uh, as Dan Brown describes it and that's why I picked this random tidbit up so yeah Dan Brown also um, I don't know if I would recommend them but uh, they're exciting to read but they're really they're really like cheap in a way it's like an action movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, it's not bad, but you would not take this for like high class cinema or high class writing, in my opinion. Anyway, but it's
3: easy to read. So. Yeah, <laughs> if you're somebody who forgets details and for whom uh, Game of Thrones is too complex, like for me, <laughs> yeah. read that one. <laughs> At least you remember from one night to the next what you read <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and who the characters were. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: also I know it's not quite um, Vavilov level but Paracelsus gets mentioned as well and we had him in the last book and we learned that his name was like Philippus Aurelius Theoprastus Bombastus von Hochenheim and I just I love him <laughs> because of that Bombastus another yeah, thing bingo
2: love, <laughs> I love that we have
1: recurring characters now it's beautiful
2: so <laughs> anything else on, on the Mariana?
1: I think we need drugs in our bingo as well, right? We need, like, the author getting high at some point or, like, some sort of, like, mention of drug experimentation that might be personal. That seems like a nice bingo play.
0: All right. Desire control. Plant the potato. Solanum tuberosum. And so here we have a nice little history of kind of potatoes, how there was a potato fungus that killed a bunch of the poor Irish people and a bunch of them then immigrated to the United States and then we but have
1: can I, can I just oh. comment on that again like this is again with your history thing like so like the potato blight the, the famine of, of Ireland like yes there was like a fungus that was killing the potato or like these oh myces or whatever they're called um but again this was a problem because the English were had control over the Irish were taking all of the land the Irish could like not afford to grow anything except for potatoes like the reason Irish people died was not because of the fungus so much as it was because of this like horrible imperialist control which like let them not have any other crops apart from potatoes like so again There was some mention of the English in there. Yeah, I feel like he does, like, he talked about it more than the war on drugs. That's true. But it was still, like, (laughs) it was a little bit too little for me when you sort of say, oh, yes. Because there was also these, like, these historical mentions of how um, the English viewed the Irish as being stupid and the potato makes them breed too much. And there was, like, all this horrible stuff. And yes, it wasn't him saying it, it was, like, this historical reports of these Irish and their links to, like, this stupid food. But... Again, when you're reporting that side of history, I want to also be like, oh, by the way, like this English people were like being absolutely horrible and a little bit more, just a little bit more there could have. could have.
3: I think he makes it very clear in the end that uh, when the famine is in, in Ireland, they're still exporting uh, corn. Or corn or wheat was it? Yeah, some, maybe. Yeah, and uh, they they can't afford it themselves. It could have fed them, uh, and they wouldn't have died. But they were exporting it to the to the, to England, and uh, so they yeah they died because they couldn't pay for it. And that's more you could see is really then the plant the issue or is the economy the issue and social and cultural problems are actually behind that problem much more than, of course, there is an issue of it being having been a monoculture because they all planted the same variety of potatoes and they are all clones. So they are genetically identical and they would just rot within two days from a spore coming there and uh, taking over the whole field. Um, and I think that that chapter talked a little bit or had a lot of focus on the problems of monoculture and how that is uh, driving the world today and how it's causing uh, problems. So he, when he goes back there and talks about that, that um, if you would go to, to South America, people have been living with potatoes and planting them for a long time. And they never had had that issue because they have such a huge variety but it's it's both it's part of uh, economy and part of uh, the the monoculture issue that has uh, that was the problem back at that time
0: yeah and at the end of the chapter he talks about how Monsanto which is a agricultural company they make plant varieties has created this potato that has bti that creates bti which i think is a bacteria that kills uh that kills the potato um, worms. Is that right, y'all? So
1: it's, it's BT, it's the toxin that it's making that kills the bugs. Um, and that's like basically the most common form of genetic engineering, I think. So I think like a lot of US crops now, like they have this BT toxin that's helping. Like there's there's one for um, cotton as well. I think that was the first one that came out. Yeah, and I think- Your, so um, I love- You know this.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most widely used ones, um, like the cotton- um genetically mod, genetic modification um yeah and i think now we have that in in many different crop plants like if, you put it only in crop plants that are actually affected by bugs that can be killed by this toxin um and it's like certain kinds of beetles that can be killed and there's like beetles like that for potatoes and for cotton and i think for corn and for and soy soy as well yeah so um pretty sort of in in gmo terms pretty standard stuff um but yeah It was
4: was also a standard kind of pesticide anyway before GMO technology used it because the organic farmers would also just cover their crops with the BT toxin as like a natural pesticide because it was being produced by bacteria. So the the way the BT um, gets rid of the pests has been used for a long time outside of GMO technology as well.
3: And I thought this chapter, when it starts talking about the BT plants uh, and this, uh, he has gotten a variety that's called New Leaf and he's planting it in his garden and it goes kind of back and forth between how things are going on in, in his garden, how he personally relates to what he's growing there and interviews with people from Monsanto and with farmers in Idaho, if I remember was it there, where they do different kind of farming, either very intensive farming or, well, using some, uh, yeah, using the BT, co- uh, the BT uh, potato and others um, doing organic farming and how that affects the soil and the income and how the mindset of these farmers is. And then it goes back to his garden and him calling a few administrations and asking if these plants are really safe and... But the interesting thing is that he gets to hear from the Food and Drug Administration that they don't consider it as a plant, they consider it as a pesticide. <laughs> so.
2: What they consider, they consider the potato plant that he's growing as a pesticide? Yes. Uh-huh. It's
3: not a food at all, but a pesticide. <laughs> Under and, their
2: legislation. So so he, so he plants, like GM plants in his garden, and then mm-hmm. then asks about the safety and regulation of it.
3: Well, the regulation is he is allowed to grow it, okay. but he knows from the start that when he grows this, it says on the package that he is not allowed to keep any for the next generation. And Monsanto can go and uh, look through his garden. And if they find like, if he wouldn't uh, forget to dig up some potatoes and they would <laughs> sprout the next year, that wouldn't be okay. So he could get fined for that. Uh, so that's one side of it. But in the end, he has like harvested all these new leaf potatoes. And even though he admits that, um, these potatoes are they have been uh, farmed for McDonald's, and then McDonald uh, refrained from them because people wanted didn't want to eat GM. Um, but he has for sure eaten this and he has survived, but he is really not uh, confident eating his own potatoes he would eat all the other potatoes and then he's uh, going for potluck dinner and thinks oh maybe I can make a potato salad but then he's getting in this conflict of should I then tell them that these are GM potatoes and imagine if somebody has made a, a potato salad with other potatoes then they will for sure not eat mine <laughs> so, it's all of this like uh, inner conflict that he has talked to he has talked to Monsanto and uh, He has talked to the administrations there and he has talked to scientists whether they are safe or not. But it's a question, is it safe to eat them or not? And he said, and I wanted to look that up, but I didn't have time. He said that the Bt that is produced uh, in the potato plant is not degraded um, as fast as the Bt that is sprayed onto it. And then I was wondering uh, what we actually know about that. What we know about the effect of BT? I,
1: I was looking at this on some like some anti-GMO websites, and they were saying that basically because it's um like a label with like UV and sunlight, so it degrades quite rapidly the like toxin, the enzyme, or whatever it is. Um, but when it's inside the leaf, it's not going to have that degradation that happens so quickly. So that's kind of the the argument mm. for this and also like the the side where they are only spraying it a couple of times whereas like inside the leaf it's it's constantly being made right that's kind of the point
2: mm-hmm. yeah but at the same is time it- like it's it's like sort of its function is to kill bugs and it targets a thing in the bugs and you can't kill all bugs you can only kill some bugs with it so uh, unless you are a bug it's probably no reason and also usually you cook potatoes and most proteins don't survive being cooked for 20 minutes um so, yeah.
1: Oh, the the argument for the like it's hanging around was more about the development of resistance, and I think that was like a, a more mm-hmm. valid argument. I I don't think I agree that he had a neutral stance on it. I think he came down anti-GMO in a kind of sneaky way. I think the way he did the storytelling, he made it look like he was like considering both sides, but then the but I wouldn't eat it myself, and I wouldn't give it to my family. That's very much like. He's choosing a side, and he's also leading to you to that side so i wasn't i didn't find it super neutral um to be honest, but I thought it was still interesting and like I don't think the points he raised were unfair like I think the thing about the resistance is a completely valid concern to have about this
3: I think as well if it uh, when it comes to this, what he explains is that um well, there is in the regulation. There is maybe part of a um, um, yeah a weak link um, because they also say that when you go to the administrations and they know what is known about them. Well, it's the company itself that they if they think there are safety concerns, they need to prove or they need to investigate it. But there didn't seem to be a like a, a neutral, unbiased uh, investigation of the safety of these GMO plants. Now, that's also something that may be much more American than European because we have lots of regulations here and we don't grow these plants in Europe. So I don't know if that's really true. If it's like only the company saying, oh, we have a new plant and then they make studies, but there's nobody else studying them before they are released onto the market. Um, which can be a concern. And also the question is, uh, which I don't know, how much of the BT is actually in the tubers? It's made in the leaves. It is also going into the tubers. And what do we know about how how long it stays there? Um, so that, uh, yeah. Then on the other side, potatoes are very much treated with different pesticides and and herbicides and even nerve nerve system toxins and all kind of things so even the other side of not growing these gm potatoes isn't isn't nice uh, and talk when he talked to this uh, farmer uh, that person didn't feel good about what he needed to do with his potatoes and he would say Um, mcdonald requires us to do a treatment with a uh, with a chemical that's called monitor and that's a nerve toxin and when they treat with that so that there's no um what was it that wasn't going onto the potatoes and spreading a a virus brown
0: spots yeah, yeah exactly.
3: They in the fries. exactly. They wanted to avoid the, fr- the spots on the fries, which were otherwise not a problem, uh, but they sprayed with toxins, and he wouldn't send anybody onto his fields for four days after spraying because he was so afraid of what he was spraying with. Um, and I think that also showed a, a problem of the whole industry that, um, yeah, you have GMOs and they may produce some of the toxins themselves. Uh, where you don't have to spray, but for other things you still spray, and then you make GMOs that you can induce, like the the terminator uh, part there, where you can, <laughs> you can induce. Uh, um that the seeds the year after are still actually uh, functioning then you can buy other chemicals that you can spray on your on your seeds so that they will actually be surviving the next year so it's it's a little bit also about this uh, industrial control of that because potatoes were not industrialized uh, before monsanto came and made this bt potatoes they were like given from one farmer to the other but it wasn't a big industry there was no big money in that discovering do- lots of different aspects of it how culture and agriculture is influencing that and regulations and and money
1: mm-hmm. yeah i was i was also a bit like curious about this kind of regulation thing like when you sort of make statements of like oh this is just you know not regulated properly only the companies. I, I want a little bit more backstory there about what are the rules I I find it a bit weird to believe that in the U.S. there's no regulations about how crops are grown and food is made I, I don't know that it's completely little, like, I don't know anything about it and I would have liked to hear more about that if that's the stance that you're taking um that there's no regulation on these crops that and that like only Monsanto is in, involved in the regulation. I, I'm not sure. Like I'm, and I'm definitely not pro Monsanto or bio now. But um, <laughs> there's there's these things where I'm like, I if when I hear like GMO arguments, I really want the stance to be balanced, and I often find that there is a skew where it does have an opinion to be pro or to be anti, and then I just I just find myself questioning then everything that's been written, if you have this skew. And to me, he skewed a little bit anti with this ending story of, like, I didn't eat it. And again, like, yeah, these neurotoxins, like, that stuff, like, what about the regulation for that? Like, these kind of stories, I, this made me a bit like, yeah, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think he does. I mean, he does tell what happens if you don't use GMO products, which is just... As Judith so beautifully explained, you have to blast everything with pesticides to oblivion, um, especially when McDonald's is saying that there's no way that they can have brown spots on their fries under any circumstances. Um
1: but so. he also had this this organics farmer story. And he kind of, to me, he sold that as the ideal. Like he had this, there was this alternative farmer who wasn't using the GMOs and also wasn't using pests and was getting really nice crop yields. And he really, to me, that was the hero of the story. That was the, the argument he wanted to promote. And I'm sorry, that's not realistic. We cannot have everybody eating organic food. Like one third of our world population will die. Like we cannot farm like that. We don't have the ability to right now. We know that. So I really... Again, it makes me really itchy when people say like, oh, like, this is the hero. Like, sure, for you, if you're rich and white and can afford organic (laughs) food, that's great for you. But like, that's we can't afford to feed our people right now. That's not, it's not possible.
2: And just a follow-up, I just looked up, like in the United States, um, the regulation is actually done by three different agencies. So there's the Food and Drug Administration, um, the US Department of Agriculture and the US Environment Protection Agency. All of them are involved in the regulation of crops, uh, I don't know how, like, the details work, but if it's anything like in, in the European Union, you have independent bodies that run field trials before you actually are allowed to market any variety. Because you even conventionally bred non-GM varieties can hold um, danger to sort of your uh, production system and you want to avoid introducing anything that's also problematic for other varieties. Um so I
1: think we can. I think we can agree that the EU is definitely stricter, just based on the current status yeah, of yeah. GMO. I That's think we agree was with thinking. that, but I just don't think it's like the wild, wild west in the US. Like, yeah, I don't know
0: exactly how it's different, but I know that we are much less strict. <laughs> And also I wanted to tell you, Tegan, that you shouldn't read The Omnivore's Dilemma because just like (laughs) the marijuana chapter is kind of foreshadowing of his book about hallucinogenic plants, I feel like this chapter is kind of foreshadowing of The Omnivore's Dilemma, which is what made Michael Pollan really famous and which is all about the, um, you know, farming industrial complex.
3: Mm -hmm. So... Joram said that, uh, yeah, there's there's different agencies, and he actually called them here in the end, and he called also, the, one of them says they don't consider this as a food but a pesticide, the other one says <laughs> um, BT has always been a safe pesticide, the potato has always been a safe food, so put the two together and... <laughs> You've got something that should be safe to eat. <laughs> so, of course, there's one thing. There is this agency, but the question is, who does really run the trials? Is it up to the company to run the trials? Um, and how, how neutral are they in when they do this? Um, and there was something, but I didn't know what actually that was. Uh, and that is when he called this um, a scientist from the Union of Concerned Scientists in Washington. And she says something about substantial uh, substantial equivalence what is substantial equivalence for nothing, for something that what does that refer to
0: what page is that on no uh, yeah, two
3: five four.
4: Can you
0: read
3: the sentence? Yeah, she said, she couldn't offer any hard scientific proof that my new leaves were unsafe to eat, but she pointed out that there was also no scientific proof for the notion of substantial equivalence. And then it's, uh, there's a little, like, uh, asterisk there. It says, in fact, internal documents that have come to light as part of a consumer suit against the FDA reveal that several of the agency's own scientists also reject the notion of substantial equivalence. And I just don't know. What's substantial equivalence, actually? <laughs> what so is that?
1: It's, it's the idea that the genetically modified plants are basically the same as any other plant. So it's like... Okay. It's but so yeah I I wonder. I mean there are still regulations about food that's sold in the U.S. right? So they would even if they're regulating it as a pesticide as a GM like you can't sell like for example you can't sell unpasteurized milk. This is illegal. Like you I don't know in the U.S. but like in 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 Europe you cannot not pasteurize your milk and sell it as drinkable milk. So like I there must be these kind of legislations as well. Which, anyway, it's a, it's a discussion for another time, but this was... Mm-hmm. But it's, um, I think
3: he's, he's referring to one point also, which is labeling. Um, and that comes down to that he wouldn't want to offer this potato salad there to his neighbors. And it came down to, should we actually be obliged to label when something is a GMO or not? Um, and that is—I don't know on which page it was, but it's um, yeah,
0: which is a huge debate in the U.S.
3: Yeah, I think I that's, don't know if it's a debate there. It's brought up in in some way that it, like a question.
0: All of this talk is just making me really hungry for potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's lunchtime here. <laughs>
3: one point that that was one point that was kind of uh, interesting in this is that it's all a question of culture as well that uh, if we if If you think about this uh, neurotoxin being used by or being demanded to be used by McDonald's so that our french fries look good and that our french fries look the same in Stockholm, in New York, in London and in Tokyo when you buy them at McDonald's, it's a cultural issue that we want these things to look like that. That means with our choices, with the consumer's choice to, to buy, we are driving these industries If this is what is ideal for us, we have a part in that. It's not just the the farmers that it's like their fault that the soils are poor or that so many toxins are used. It's also a question for us, what kind of quality of a fruit do we accept to buy? to eat.
1: So that, that made me very anxious the fact that like McDonald's like that the link between the m- monopoly of McDonald's with this like huge company Monsanto which then is falling back on the farm, like that was the big thing that really concerns me that Because McDonald's wants a certain type of potato for their fries and they have to look a certain way, the farmer then has two options. And one is they have to use a certain variety. So that was basically the problem. They have to use this one variety that's susceptible to getting these brown spots. So their option then is to either spray neurotoxins or to go with the GMO. And this is what really terrifies me that their hand is forced to do two things that they might not otherwise do if it wasn't for mcdonald's having this huge share of the market and then that being and again like the reason mcdonald's was making these links was because monsanto was encouraging mcdonald's to use their new leaf potato so that terrifies me like this uh, governments should get in there and be like you cannot make these kind of legislations like you cannot have rules that encourage farmers to use like somebody else's product like this this scares me
3: Yeah, and the whole idea that, um, I mean, he had both the the, the example from this organic farmer, and he didn't have some of these problems because he would just not grow this variety. So he wouldn't have the bugs coming, he didn't have to treat. But also the example from Ireland with the monoculture that was all gone by uh, by this virus. And the opposite example from growing potatoes in in their native habitats in in South America, where they don't have these issues because they have biodiversity. And I think there he has a very strong point that uh, as long as we don't encourage biodiversity in farming, we will have always these issues that we need to use more chemicals and soils get poor and then the plants get also less resistant. So... This is this is an issue, um, and that is certainly something that everybody's choice of what we buy is influencing what will be grown and produced. And yet, even that farmer that would uh, spray his potatoes and and do all this, he would farm an organic patch of potatoes in his backyard and eat those. So even people who grow these potatoes don't want to eat them. They don't feel they don't feel that they are safe. And then there was another farmer who was okay with that. And he would just like, that's the business. I'm in the business. That's how we do.
1: So like, for me, this is one of the things, like he has this description about how he could get arrested if some of his potatoes stay and he regrows the Monsanto produce. And this is an argument that comes up a lot against like these kind of um, trademarked crops. But the thing is, If you don't want to use the trademarked crops, don't use the trademarked crops. Like, if you want to plant the wheat... And you want the bet like you're doing it because you believe it's better. Like you think you're going to get a financial benefit from growing Monsanto's crops. And that's why you're planting it. And then if you think you're going to get better, you have to be willing to pay them for their investment, their technology, the years and years they put into it. And to me, that's completely fair. They can have these things that don't reproduce. It's not like they're putting that on all wheat. They're only putting them on their wheat. If you want your wheat to be able to reproduce or your potatoes to be able to grow the next year, that's fine. Don't use their potatoes. So for me like that's why I'm really scared about the McDonald's thing because that becomes a huge problem if you then have a third party that's forcing use of these like crops and like yeah the problem of producing genetically modified termination lines which don't produce seeds not an issue to me but a system where you have to use that certain technology that becomes a terrifying issue so that's kind of something where I think my opinions are a little bit different on other people's. But like, again, if a company spends 10, 20 years developing like a drug, it's accepted that they would have some sort of ability to get that money back. And I don't really see the difference. I understand it's food. It's a little bit more sensitive, but I don't see the difference as long as there's no forcing of them to use that product. And that's what's happening with the McDonald's thing here, right? Like that's terrifying. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, because then you don't encourage biodiversity. Then the commercial pipeline encourages uh, monoculture of only that given potato
1: i mean it's not even the biodiversity issue it's it's like the you're also forcing them to buy from this other company right so you're giving a monopoly to monsanto or Bayer mm. now but like that's like another commercial problem mm. i mean we already have we already have a biodiversity issue before GMOs were a thing, there has been a biodiversity issue and that's from our farming and that's kind of a separate issue to the GM thing for me. But like, this is like adding an extra level of corporate control and that is like very icky. Hmm.
3: What did you think about the resistance issue? How Monsanto dealt with that?
1: Yeah, that's exactly terrifying and, and gross, right? Like,
2: <laughs> how, how did they deal with it?
1: They're like, well, it, by us having these leaves that are constantly expressing BT, there is more likelihood that they'll become resistant, like the resistance will happen faster. And this is problematic because as as we all mentioned, like other farmers are using BT as a, an insecticide, including organic farmers. And for them, they were like, oh, yeah, when resistance comes, we'll just develop a new crop. So they're basically <laughs> like taking away a resource that is like common for everyone
2: maybe alan you want to like segue into the ratings oh
1: Ellen, yeah <laughs> take yes, <control.
0: laughs> i would rate this four out of five green potatoes which are poisonous and <laughs> you don't know um it's a great read uh i enjoy reading michael Pollan; he's a great writer it's it's a great for like a character-driven um relaxing afternoon read in my opinion
3: I will give it uh, three out of five apple seeds that would make the catamaran tip <laughs> 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 I, I i liked I liked part of it, other parts uh, i didn 't like um, some things were very wordy. On another hand, there was lots of things for different people that like different things in one book. Um, however, that is a good idea or not to write such a book. Um, I think if we wouldn't have had the podcast, um, I would probably have given up after the first chapter and <laughs> yeah. never seen what came afterwards. <laughs> so So uh, it, could, it could be a little bit more user-friendly internationally and also, I think, a bit more... Um, like uh non yeah non-racist uh, in different areas <laughs> so i think that that would have been nice <laughs> but otherwise it was an interesting read it was definitely a book uh, that made me want to talk about these things with other people and discuss this and it, it gives a, a different perspective on on some of the plants i look at tulips now and think no they are not masculine
1: <laughs> Something I would never have thought before. I think like ig- ignoring um, uncomfortable history should also be on our bingo. Like they're just yes. like ignoring races yeah, That's definitely true. on the bingo.
4: So I give it four monocultures out of five. I enjoyed reading the book. I liked how it focused on you know four different plants with different stories and different aspects, and how it combined history and some science. Um, behind it so overall i enjoyed reading it some parts i'd enjoyed less than others but um on the whole it's it's more of like a plant history um and how humans use plants rather than a uh, plants eye view of the world i thought
1: and yoram how many thrusting tulips out of five do you give it
2: <laughs> i don't know like I, like we criticized a lot of the things but then everybody gave four to five ratings or more or less um yeah. So now I'm now I'm wondering like did I did I get it right? Did I get like um just a specific perspe- perspective of it? I'm sort of curious to read some of the things, but I know already that I will be um angry slash annoyed at the GM stuff uh, and that like the, the what you said, Alan, that um he glosses over completely ignores the the racial part of um the war on drugs and. This sort of ignorance is also something I don't enjoy. So, but my, how my, many ca- books my tulips do you wait f- under the ground for the next year, which is the next book. <laughs> um, I've how seen.
1: many um? How many books do you read the, the, on plants that use the word testiculate? In them?
2: <laughs> Not that, that many. Unfortunately, <laughs> surely <laughs> worth
1: half a point extra. <laughs> yeah.
2: So maybe I can just read the page where this is on, and then I have done uh, my duty on it.
1: Do y'all have our next book yet?
2: Bitter which is El- <laughs> depends which one it is <laughs> yeah
1: maybe Ellen, you could do the the outro where you tell us what we're reading next yeah next we're reading
0: bitter roots who's it by Mer-
4: melissa
1: abina dove
4: osseo asare
2: yeah i think i have that i think that's sitting in my shelf waiting for me to be read.
0: yeah i'm psyched to read that i have i got my copy too
3: already yeah that's that gives us actually more time because for us it's always waiting for me at least in sweden i wait i wait two to three weeks until I get the book and we have four weeks until we meet next time then it's like oh no <laughs> <laughs> i
4: need to hurry <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah good um alan do you want to say or everybody want to say goodbye
4: Yes,
0: sounds good. Bye, y'all. Thanks for listening. It was so fun to talk to everyone today. My name is Ellen Earhart. You can find me on Twitter at Ellen Earhart. That's A-I-R-H-A-R-T. Or you can find my Instagram on the same uh, same uh name. And uh, yeah, you can listen to my podcast, Plant it Crimes. It's new episodes, right? Yes, I've been doing an episode every month, which is a better schedule for me than trying to do uh one every week all at the same time so uh yeah the last episode was about cactus thieves in big bin national park so <laughs> tegan do you want to go next introduce plants and pipettes
1: yeah so i'm um, tegan and with yoram we run plants and pipettes Um we have a blog and also a podcast you can find us on www.plantsandpipettes.com um, on facebook and instagram we're at plants and pipettes and on twitter we're at Plants and pipettes. You
3: yes okay
1: (laughs) yes we you
3: can find us we're doing a plant microscopy pattern on diverse textiles so you can find us at www.flora-l.com and we are also on instagram at flora.l.design and uh, on facebook uh, slash flora, flora l design a b that's the swedish company thing a b <laughs> in the end that's why that's there um and uh yeah we've also recently started a podcast which is called uh flora and friends your botanical cup of tea where we make small series about different plant species and right now we are in a mini series about pelargoniums so if you're interested in that just listen to us they are on all the normal podcast uh, channels and on know website. That's
0: so exciting. I didn't know about that. What's it called again?
3: Flora and Friends. I'm doing like interviews with all kind of different people that some parts on history, some parts on uh, industry, on breeding, on people that collect plants. And uh, I I had first decided to do it like once per month, a long episode, but uh, then I decided for shorter interviews and releasing it once per week. So um I, I yeah the first ones i managed to keep to 20 minutes but i think now i'm like 30 40 minutes <laughs> once you get to talk to people it's easy to ask more questions
0: <laughs> yeah for sure
2: cool then uh, i'm excited to join in next time again with like with having read the book i hope i managed like i'm saying that now uh, <laughs> but it was fun listening to you uh talk about the book um so yeah bye
4: bye bye uh. Bye! <laughs>
2: Bye! The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp, where it is published under a Creative Commons License 3.0.